Section two of Lynn McLean by Owen Wister. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter one How Lynn McLean Went East. Part two. Wonder if the professor's there yet, said Lynn, and he went across the railroad tracks. The bartender nodded to him as he passed through into the back room. In that place were many tables, and the flat clicking and rattle of ivory counters sounded pleasantly through the music. Lin did not join the stud poker game. He stood over a table at which sat a dealer and a player, very silent, opposite each other, and whereon were painted sundry cards, numerals, and the colors red and black in squares. The legend, Jack's Pay, was also clearly painted. The player placed chips on whichever insignia of fortune he chose, and the dealer slid cards, quite fairly, from the top of a pack that lay held within a skeleton case made with some clamped bands of tin. Sometimes the player's pile of chips rose high, and sometimes his sumptuous pillar of gold pieces was lessened by one. It was very interesting, and pretty to see. Lynn had much better have joined the game of stud poker. Presently the eye of the dealer met the eye of the player. After that slight incident the player's chip-pile began to rise, and rose steadily, till the dealer made admiring comments on such a run of luck. Then the player stopped, cashed in, and said good-night having nearly doubled the number of his gold pieces. Five dollars' worth,' said Lynn, sitting down at the vacant seat. The chips were counted out to him. He played with unimportant shiftings of fortune until a short while before his train was due, and then, singularly enough, he discovered he was one hundred and fifty dollars behind the game. I guess I'll leave the train go without me, said Lynn, buying five dollars worth more of ivory counters. So that train came and went, removing eastward Mr. McLean's trunk. During the hour that followed, his voice grew dogged and his remarks briefer, as he continually purchased more chips from the now surprised and sympathetic dealer. It was really wonderful how steadily Lynn lost just as steadily as his predecessor had won after that meeting of eyes early in the evening. When Lynn was three hundred dollars out, his voice began to clear of its huskiness, and a slight humor revolved and sparkled in his eye. When his seven hundred dollars had gone to safer hands, and he had nothing left at all but some silver fractions of a dollar, his robust cheerfulness was all back again. He walked out and stood among the railroad tracks with his hands in his pockets and laughed at himself in the dark. Then his fingers came on the check for Omaha, and he laughed loudly. The trunk by this hour must be nearing Rollins. It was going east anyhow. "'I'm following it, you bet,' he declared, kicking the rail. "'Not yet, though. Nor I'll not go to Washiki to have him josh me.' and yonder lies Boston. He stretched his arm and pointed eastward. Had he seen another man going on in this fashion alone in the dark, among side-tracked freight-cars, 
He would have pitied the poor fool. And I guess Boston'll have to get along without me for a spell, too," continued Lin. A man don't want to show up plum broke like that younger son did, after eatin' with the hogs, the bishop told about. His father was a Jim Dandy, that hog chaps. Hustled around and set him up when he come back home. Frank, he'd say to me, how do you do, brother, and he'd be wearin' a good suit of clothes and— No, sir, you bet. Lin now watched the great headlight of a freight train bearing slowly down into Green River from the wilderness. Green River is the end of a division, an epoch in every train's journey. Lanterns swung signals, the great dim thing slowed to its standstill by the coal chute, its locomotive moved away for a turn of repose, the successor backed steaming to its place to tackle a night's work. Cars were shifted, heavily bumping and parting. "'Hello, Lin,' a face was looking from the window of the caboose. "'Hello,' responded Mr. McLean, perceiving above his head Honey Wigan, a good friend of his. They had not met for three years. "'They claimed you got killed somewheres. I was sorry to hear it.' Honey offered his condolence quite sincerely. "'Bruck my leg,' corrected Lin, if that's what they meant. "'I expect that's it,' said Honey. "'You've had no other trouble?' "'Been boomin,' said Lin. From the mere undertone in their voices it was plain they were good friends, carefully hiding their pleasure at meeting. "'Where are you bound?' inquired Honey. "'East,' said Lin. "'Better jump in here, then. We're going west.' "'That just suits me,' said Lin. The busy lanterns wagged among the switches, the steady lights of the saloon shone along the town's wooden façade. From the bluffs that wall Green River, the sweet, clean sagebrush wind blew down in currents freshly through the coal smoke. A wrench passed through the train from locomotive to caboose, each fettered car in turn strained into motion and slowly rolled over the bridge and into silence from the steam and the bells of the railroad yard. Through the open windows of the caboose great dull red cinders rattled in, and the whistles of distant Union Pacific locomotives sounded over the open plains, ominous and long, like ships at sea. Honey and Lynn sat for a while, making few observations, and far between, as their way is between whom flows a stream of old-time understanding. Mutual whiskey and silence can express much friendship, and eloquently. "'What you doin' at present?' Lynn inquired. "'Prospectin'.' Now prospecting means hunting gold, except to such spirits as the boy Lynn. To these it means finding gold. So Lynn McLean listened to the talk of his friend Honey Wigan as the caboose trundled through the night. He saw himself in a vision of the near future enter a bank and thump down a bag of gold dust. Then he saw the new clean money the man would hand him in exchange, bills with round zeros half covered by being folded over, and heavy satisfactory gold pieces and then he saw the blue water that twinkles beneath Boston. His fingers came again on his trunk check. He had his ticket, too, and as dawn now revealed the gray country to him, his eye fell casually upon a milepost, Omaha, 
876. He began to watch for them. 877. 878. But the trunk would really get to Omaha. What are you laughing about? asked Honey. Uh, the wheels. Wheels? Don't you hear em? said Lynn. Variety. They keep saying variety, variety. Huh? said Lynn with scorn. Kerchunk, kerchunk's all I make it. You're no poet, observed Mr. McLean. As the train moved into Evanston in the sunlight, a gleam of dismay shot over Lynn's face, and he ducked his head out of sight of the window, but immediately raised it again. Then he leaned out, waving his arm with a certain defiant vigor. But the bishop on the platform failed to notice this performance, though it was done for his sole benefit, nor would Lynn explain to the inquisitive Wigan what the matter was. Therefore, very naturally, Honey drew a conclusion for himself, looking quickly out of the window, and being disappointed in what he expected to see, remarked sulkily, "'Do you figure I care what sort of looking girl is stuck on you in Evanston?' And upon this young Lynn laughed so loudly that his friend told him he had never seen a man get so foolish in three years. By and by they were in Utah, and in the company of Ogden friends forgot prospecting. Later they resumed freight trains and journeyed north. In Idaho they said good-bye to the train hands in the caboose, and came to Little Camas, and so among the mountains near Feather Creek. Here the berries were of several sorts, and growing riper each day, and the bears in the timber above knew this, and came down punctually with the season, making variety in the otherwise even life of the prospectors. It was now August, and Lynn sat on a wet hill making mud pies for sixty days. But the philosopher's stone was not in the wash at that placer, nor did Lynn gather gold dust sufficient to cover the nail of his thumb. Then they heard of an excitement at Obo, Nevada, and hurrying to Obo, they made some more mud pies. Now and then, eating their fat bacon at noon, Honey would say, Lynn, where you goin'? And Lynn always replied, East. This became a signal for drinks. For beauty and promise, Nevada is a name among names. Nevada. Pronounce the word aloud. Does it not evoke mountains and clear air, heights of untrodden snow and valleys aromatic with the pine and musical with falling waters? Nevada. But the name is all. Abomination of desolation presides over nine-tenths of the place. The sun beats down as on a roof of zinc, fierce and dull. Not a drop of water to a mile of sand. The mean ash-dump landscape stretches on from nowhere to nowhere, a spot of mange. No portion of the earth is more lacquered with paltry, unimportant ugliness. There is gold in Nevada, but Lynn and Honey did not find it. Prospecting of the sort they did, besides proving unfruitful, is not comfortable. Now and again, losing patience, Lynn would leave his work and stalk about, and gaze down at the scattered men who stooped or knelt in the water. Passing each busy prospector, 
Lynn would read on every broad, upturned pair of overalls the same label, Levi Strauss, number two, with a picture of two lusty horses hitched to one of these garments and vainly struggling to split them asunder. Lynn remembered he was wearing a label just like that, too, and when he considered all things, he laughed to himself. Then, having stretched the ache out of his long legs, he would return to his ditch. As autumn wore on, his feet grew cold in the mushy gravel they were sunk in. He beat off the sand that had stiffened on his boots, and hated Oboe, Nevada. But he held himself ready to say east whenever he saw Honey coming along with the bottle. The cold weather put an end to this adventure. The ditches froze and filled with snow, through which the sorted gravel heaps showed in a dreary fashion. So the two friends drifted southward. Near the small new town of Mesa, Arizona, they sat down again in the dirt. It was milder here, and when the sun shone, never quite froze. But this part of Arizona is scarcely more grateful to the eye than Nevada. Moreover, Lynn and Honey found no gold at all. Some men near them found a little. Then, in January, even though the sun shone, it quite froze one day. "'We're seeing the country anyway,' said Honey. "'Seeing hell,' said Lynn, "'and there's more of it above ground than I thought.' "'What'll we do?' Honey inquired. "'Have to walk for a job, a good-paying job,' responded the hopeful cowpuncher, and he and Honey went to town. Lynn found a job in twenty-five minutes, becoming assistant to the apothecary in Mesa. Established at the drug store, he made up the simpler prescriptions. He had studied practical pharmacy in Boston between the ages of thirteen and fifteen, and besides this qualification, the apothecary had seen him when he first came into Mesa and liked him. Lynn made no mistakes that he or anyone ever knew of, and as the mild weather began, he materially increased the apothecary's business by persuading him to send east for a soda-water fountain. The ladies of the town clustered around this entertaining novelty, and while sipping vanilla and lemon bought knick-knacks. And the gentlemen of the town discovered that whiskey with soda and strawberry syrup was delicious, and produced just as competent effects. A group of them were generally standing in the shop and shaking dice to decide who should pay for the next, while Lynn administered to each glass the necessary ingredients. Thus money began to come to him a little more steadily than had been its wont, and he divided with the penniless Honey. But Honey found fortune quickly, too. Through excellent card-playing he won a pinto from a small Mexican horse-thief who came into town from the south and who cried bitterly when he delivered up his pet pony to the new owner. The new owner, being a man of the world and agile on his feet, was only slightly stabbed that evening as he walked to the dance-hall at the edge of the town. The Mexican was buried on the next day but one. The pony stood thirteen-two, and was as long as a steamboat. He had white eyelashes, pink nostrils, and one eye was bright blue. If you spoke pleasantly to him, 
he rose instantly on his hind legs and tried to beat your face. He did not look as if he could run, and that was what made him so valuable. Honey traveled through the country with him, and every gentleman who saw the pinto and heard Honey became anxious to get up a race. Lynn always sent money for Wigan to place, and he soon opened a bank account, while Honey, besides his racing bridle, bought a silver inlaid one, a pair of forty-dollar spurs, and a beautiful saddle richly stamped. Every day, when in Mesa, Honey would step into the drug store and inquire, "'Lynn, where you goin'?' But Lynn never answered any more. He merely came to the soda-water fountain with the whiskey. The passing of days brought a choked season of fine sand and hard blazing sky. Heat rose up from the ground and hung heavily over man and beast. Many insects sat out in the sun, rattling with joy. The little tearing river grew clear from the swollen mud and shrank to a succession of standing pools, and the fat, squatting cactus bloomed everywhere into butter-colored flowers big as tulips in the sand. There were artesian wells in Mesa, and the water did not taste very good, but if you drank from the standing pools where the river had been, you repaired to the drug store almost immediately. A troop of wandering players came dotting along the railroad, and reaching Mesa, played a brass band up and down the street, and announced the powerful drama of East Lynn. Then Mr. McLean thought of the Lynn marshes that lie between there and Chelsea, and of the sea that must look so cool. He forgot them while following the painful fortunes of the Lady Isabel. But going to bed in the back part of the drug store, he remembered how he used to beat everybody swimming in the salt water. "'I'm going,' he said. Then he got up, and striking the light, he inspected his bank account. "'I'm sure going,' he repeated, blowing the light out, and I can buy the fatted calf myself, you bet for he had often thought of the bishop's story. "'You bet!' he remarked, once more in a muffled voice, and was asleep in a minute. The apothecary was sorry to have him go, and Honey was deeply grieved. "'I'd pull out with yer,' he said, "'only I can do business round Yuma and westward with the pinto.' For three farewell days Lynn and Honey roved together in all sorts of places, where they were welcome, and once more Lynn rode a horse and was in his native element. Then he traveled to Deming, and so through Denver to Omaha, where he was told that his trunk had been sold for some months. Besides a suit of clothes for town wear, it had contained a buffalo coat for his brother, something scarce to see in these days. "'Frank'll have to get along without it,' he observed philosophically and took the next eastbound train. If you journey in a Pullman from Mesa to Omaha without a waistcoat, and with a silk handkerchief knotted over the collar of your flannel shirt instead of a tie, wearing, besides, tall, high-heeled boots, a soft gray hat with a splendid brim, a few people will notice you, but not the majority. New Mexico and Colorado are used to these things as Iowa, with its immense rolling grain, encompasses you, 
People will stare a little more, for you're getting near the East, where cowpunchers are not understood. But in those days the line of cleavage came sharp-drawn at Chicago. West of there was still tolerably west, but east of there was east indeed, and the Atlantic Ocean was the next important stopping place. In Lynn's new train, good gloves, patent leathers, and silence prevailed throughout the sleeping car, which was for Boston without change. Had not home memories begun impetuously to flood his mind, he would have felt himself conspicuous. Town clothes and conventions had their due value with him, but just now the boy's single-hearted thoughts were far from any surroundings, and he was murmuring to himself, "Tomorrow, tomorrow night." There were ladies in that blue plush car for Boston who looked at Lynn for thirty miles at a stretch, and by the time Albany was reached the next day one or two of them commented that he was the most attractive-looking man they had ever seen, whereas beyond his tallness and wide-open jocular eyes, eyes that seemed those of a not-highly-conscientious wild animal, there was nothing remarkable about young Lynn except stage effect. The conductor had been annoyed to have such a passenger, but the cowpuncher troubled no one and was extremely silent. So evidently was he a piece of the true frontier that curious and hopeful fellow-passengers, after watching him with diversion, more than once took a seat next to him. He met their chatty inquiries with monosyllables so few and so unprofitable in their quiet politeness that the passengers soon gave him up. At Springfield he sent a telegram to his brother at the great dry-goods establishment that employed him. The train began its home stretch after Worcester, and whirled and swung by hills and ponds he began to watch for, and through stations with old wayside names. These flashed on Lynn's eyes as he sat with his hat off and his forehead against the window, looking. Wellesley. Then, not long after, Riverside. That was the Charles River. And did the picnic woods used to be above the bridge or below? West Newton, Newtonville, Newton, Van Wee next, he said aloud in the car, as the long-forgotten home knowledge shone forth in his recollection. The traveller seated near said, Beg pardon? But turning, wondered at the all-unconscious Lynn, with his forehead pressed against the glass. The blue water flashed into sight, and soon after they were running in the darkness between high walls. But the cowpuncher never moved, though nothing could be seen. When the porter announced Boston, he started up and followed like a sheep in the general exodus. Down on the platform he moved along with a slow crowd till someone touched him, and wheeling round he seized both his brother's hands and swore a good oath of joy. There they stood, the long brown fellow with a silk handkerchief knotted over his flannel shirt, greeting tremendously the spruce civilian who had a rope-colored mustache and bore a faint-hearted resemblance to him. The story was plain on its face to the passers-by, and one of the ladies who had come in the car with Lynn 
turned twice and smiled gently to herself. But Frank McLean's heart did not warm. He felt that what he had been afraid of was true, and he saw he was being made conspicuous. He saw men and women stare in the station, and he saw them staring as he and his western brother went through the streets. Lynn strode along, sniffing the air of Boston, looking at all things, and making it a stretch for his sleek companion to keep step with him. Frank thought of the refined friends he should have to introduce his brother to, for he had risen with his salary, and now belonged to a small club where the paying tellers of banks played cards every night, and the head clerk at the Parker House was president. Perhaps he should not have to reveal the cowpuncher to these shining ones. Perhaps the cowpuncher would not stay very long. Of course he was glad to see him again, and he would take him to dine at some obscure place this first evening, but this was not Lynn's plan. Frank must dine with him at the Parker House. Frank demurred, saying it was he that should be host. And, he added, they charge up high for wines at Parker's. Then for the twentieth time he shifted a sidelong eye over his brother's clothes. "'You're going to take your grub with me,' said Lynn. "'That's all right, I guess. And there ain't any no about it. Things is not the same like as if father was livin'—' his voice softened— "'and here to see me come home. Now I'm good for several dinners with wines charged up high, I expect, nor it ain't nobody in this world, barrin' just Lynn McLean, that I've any need to ask for anything. "'Mr. McLean,' says I to Lynn, "'can you spare me some cash?' "'Why, to be sure, you bet, and we'll start off with steamed Duxbury clams.' The cowpuncher slapped his pocket, where the coin made a muffled clinking. Then he said gruffly, "'I suppose Swampscott's there yet?' "'Yes,' said Frank. "'It's a dead little town, is Swampscott.' I guess I'll take a look at the old house tomorrow, Lynn pursued. Oh, that's been pulled down since. I forget the year they improved that block. Lynn regarded in silence his brother, who was speaking so jauntily of the first and last home they had ever had. Seventy-nine is when it was, continued Frank, so you can save the trouble of traveling way down to Swampscott. I guess I'll go to the graveyard anyway, said the cowpuncher in his offish voice, and looked fixedly in front of him. They came into Washington Street, and again the elder McLean uneasily surveyed the younger's appearance. But the momentary chill had melted from the heart of the genial Lynn. After tomorrow, said he, laying a hand on his brother's shoulder, you can start any lead you please, and I guess I can stay with you pretty close, Frank." Frank said nothing. He saw one of the members of his club on the other side of the way, and the member saw him, and Frank caught diverted amazement on the member's face. Lynn's hand weighed on his shoulder, and the stress became too great. Lynn, said he, while you're running with our crowd, you don't want to wear that style of hat, you know. It may be that such words can in some way be spoken at such a time, but not in the way that these were said. The frozen fact was irrevocably revealed in the tone of Frank's voice. 
the cow-puncher stopped dead short, and his hand slid off his brother's shoulder. "'You've made it plain,' he said, evenly, slanting his steady eyes down into Frank's. "'You've explained yourself fairly well. Run along with your crowd, and I'll not bother you more with coming round and causing you to feel ashamed. It's a heap better to understand these things at once, and save making a fool of yourself any longer than you need to. I guess there ain't no more to be said, only one thing. If you see me round on the street, don't you try any talk, for I'll be liable to close your jaw up, and maybe you'd have more of a job explaining that to your crowd than you've had making me see what kind of a man I've got for a brother." Frank found himself standing alone before any reply to these sentences had occurred to him. He walked slowly to his club, where a friend joked him on his glumness. Lynn made a sore failure of amusing himself that night, and in the bright, hot morning he got into the train for Swampscott. At the graveyard he saw a woman lay a bunch of flowers on a mound and kneel, weeping. "'There ain't nobody to do that for this one,' thought the cowpuncher, and looked down at the grave he had come to see, then absently gazed at the woman. She had stolen away from her daily life to come here where her grief was shrined, and now her heart found it hard to bid the lonely place good-bye. So she lingered long, her thoughts sunk deep in the motionless past. When she at last looked up, she saw the tall, strange man re-enter from the street among the tombs and deposit on one of them an ungainly lump of flowers. They were what Lynn had been able hastily to buy in Swampscott. He spread them gently as he had noticed the woman do, but her act of kneeling he did not imitate. He went away quickly. For some hours he hung about the little town, aimlessly loitering, watching the salt water where he used to swim. "'You don't belong any more, Lynn,' he miserably said at length, and took his way to Boston. The next morning, determined to see the sights, he was in New York, and drifted about to all places night and day, till his money was mostly gone, and nothing to show for it but a somewhat pleasure-beaten face and a deep hatred of the crowded, scrambling East. So he suddenly bought a ticket for Green River, Wyoming, and escaped from the city that seemed to numb his good humor. When, after three days, the Missouri lay behind him and his holiday, he stretched his legs and took heart to see out of the window the signs of approaching desolation. And when, on the fourth day, civilization was utterly emptied out of the world, he saw a bunch of cattle, and, galloping among them, his spurred and booted kindred. And his manner took on that alertness a horse shows on turning into the home road. As the stage took him toward Washakie, old friends turned up every fifty miles or so, shambling out of a cabin or a stable, and saying in casual tones, "'Hello, Lynn, where you been at?' At Lander there got into the stage another old acquaintance, the Bishop of Wyoming. He knew Lynn at once, and held out his hand, and his greeting was hearty. "'It took a week for my robes to catch up with me,' he said, laughing. Then, in a little while, how was the East?' 
First rate," said Lin, not looking at him. He was shy of the conversation's taking a moral turn. But the bishop had no intention of reverting, at any rate just now, to their last talk at Green River, and the advice he had then given. "'I trust your friends were all well,' he said. "'I guess they was healthy enough,' said Lin. "'I suppose you found Boston much changed? It's a beautiful city.' "'Good enough town for them that likes it, I expect,' Lin replied. The bishop was forming a notion of what the matter must be, but he had no notion whatever of what now revealed itself. "'Mr. Bishop,' the cowpuncher said, "'how was that about that fellow you told about that's in the Bible somewheres? He come home to his folks, and they—well, there was his father saw him comin'.' He stopped, embarrassed. Then the bishop remembered the wide-open eyes and how he had noticed them in the church at the agency intently watching him. And just now, what were best to say, he did not know. He looked at the young man gravely. "'Have you got a Bible?' pursued Lin. "'For, excuse me, but I'd like you to read that once a—' So the bishop read, and Lin listened. And all the while this good clergyman was perplexed how to speak, or if indeed to speak at this time at all, to the heart of the man beside him, for whom the parable had gone so sorely wrong. When the reading was done, Lin had not taken his eyes from the bishop's face. "'How long has that there been wrote?' he asked. He was told about how long. "'Mr. Bishop,' said Lin, I ain't got good knowledge of the Bible, and I never figured it to be a book much on to facts. And I tell you, I'm more plumb beat about its having that elder brother and him being angry down in black and white two thousand years ago than, than if I'd seen a man turn water into wine, for I'd have knowed that ain't so. But the elder brother is facts, dead sure facts. And they knowed about that, and put it down just the same as life, two thousand years ago. Well, said the bishop, wisely ignoring the challenge as to miracles, I am a good twenty years older than you, and all that time I have been finding more facts in the Bible every day I have lived. Lin meditated. I guess that could be, he said. Yes, after that you've been a-readin', and what I know for myself that I didn't know till lately, I guess that could be. Then the bishop talked with exceeding care, nor did he ask uncomfortable things or moralize visibly. Thus he came to hear how it had fared with Lin his friend, and Lin forgot altogether about its being a parson he was delivering the fullness of his heart to. And come to think, he concluded, it weren't home I had went to back east, layin' round them big cities where a man can't help but feel strange all the week? No, sir, you can blow in a thousand dollars like I did in New York, and it'll not give you any more home feelin' than what cattle has put in a stockyard. Nor it wouldn't have in Boston, neither. Now, this country here, he waved his hand toward the endless sagebrush, seein' it once to more, I know where my home is, and I wouldn't live nowheres else. Only I ain't got no father watchin' for me to come up Wind River." The cowpuncher stated this merely as a fact, 
and without any note of self-pity. But the bishop's face grew very tender, and he looked away from Lin. Knowing his man, for had he not seen many of this kind in his desert diocese, he forbore to make any text from that last sentence the cowpuncher had spoken. Lin talked cheerfully on about what he should do now. The round-up must be somewhere near Dunor Creek. He would join it this season, but next he would work over to the Powder River country. More business was over there, and better chances for a man to take up some land and have a ranch of his own. As they got out at Fort Washakie, the bishop handed him a small book, in which he had turned several leaves down, carefully avoiding any page that related of miracles. "'You need not read it through, you know,' he said, smiling. "'Just read where I have marked, and see if you don't find some more facts. Good-bye, and always come and see me.' The next morning he watched Lynn riding slowly out of the post towards Wind River, leading a single pack-horse. By and by the little moving dot went over the ridge, and as the bishop walked back into the parade-ground, thinking over the possibilities in that untrained manly soul, he shook his head sorrowfully. End of chapter 1, part 2